You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 10th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. As we get started, let me ask you a question. If If I asked you, why are you here? And not just why are you here, like right now this morning in this service, but why are you here on this earth? What would your answer be? 400 years ago, a little over 400 years ago, uh, a group of theologians gathered together to create a teaching tool for the church. And it was a tool that was centered around a series of questions and answers that would help teach the church abroad, all throughout the land, the principles of the Christian faith in an easy way. And when they got together to build this tool, they started this whole thing out with this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the singular chief end of man? Why are you here? The answer that they came up with was simply this, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's more to this life than just existing. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And for 400 some odd years, the church has been learning this over and over and over again in successive generations. And about 40 years ago, a pastor, a theologian named John Piper, some of you might know or maybe familiar with the name at least, uh, had been thinking about this question for about a decade. It was early in his pastoral ministry. He had been teaching in seminaries for a number of years. And he had been thinking about this one question for about a decade. How do these things go together? They said, what is the chief end, singular? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But it sounds like two things. But are the two things really different or are they related? And after a decade of actually thinking about things you and I probably never spend time thinking about, Piper made a subtle change to the catechism in the question, which you're allowed to do. It's not the Bible. You can make a subtle change. He made a subtle change. He changed one word. And the one word changed everything. What is the chief end of man? He began to write and to teach his church. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Why are we here? It's to enjoy God. And thus in our deepening enjoyment of God, we glorify him in all that we do. We glorify him by trusting that he is who he says he is and displaying that trust by ordering our life around his good word given to us that we might live the fullest life possible and not simply become another statistic of existence. We glorify God in our life as we trust and obey. And as we trust and obey, we're expressing our enjoyment of him. No, I'm not starting a new series on this. It has something to do with what we've been doing. We are going to spend the next several weeks, we started last week, looking at the seven I am passages of Jesus in John's gospel. And I I want you to know that in a very real way, in each of these passages, 
Jesus is opening up, in a sense, a, a new door and a new angle into helping us understand what it is to truly live, to not simply exist, but to truly live in such a way that we enjoy God increasingly day by day by day. And so last week, we started looking at Jesus' claim that he is the true bread of life, That those who come to him for who he is and feast upon him for who he is will not find themselves stuck just merely existing, but will truly live. And this morning, as we pick the series up again in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to expose a new entry point into this same reality. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to use the one in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one with you, open them up to John chapter 8. And you'll notice, you may have noticed it during the reading a moment ago, um, our text starts in the middle of a chapter again, just like last week. So, to make sense of what he's saying in the most clear way possible, we've got to understand what he said before that. So this week, we're not just going to go back to the start of John chapter 8 to understand. We're not just going to go back to the start of the Gospel of John to understand. We're going to go back all the way to the beginning of the story. So if you've got your Bible and you're open to John 8, put your finger there and go left all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. There's a big picture lesson to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. Genesis 1 verse 1, God's word begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And notice this. And there was light. Now, if you're familiar with the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, or take some time later on this week, if you're not, to to read it and familiarize yourself with it, what you're going to see is that from this point forward, when God speaks something into existence... What you hear after he says, let there be, and that which didn't exist comes into existence, are the words, and it was so, over and over again each day. But not right here. And that difference, when he said, let there be light, and the scriptures record, and there was light, sent Jewish scholars on a quest for understanding that's gone on for centuries. Add to that little subtle difference the fact that plants were created on day three, but the sun and the moon were created on day four. How did that which needs light to exist and thrive and survive come to exist and live before that which it needed to do that was actually created? They began to study and to think, and Jewish scholars began to teach, and they have for centuries. That this light in Genesis 1, 1 through 3 is not a created light in the sense that the sun and the moon are. It's a revealed light. It is the light of God's glory and presence entering into creation. It's what is known as the Shekinah glory of God, the fullness of the presence of God in his glory now being revealed into creation such so that it can give life and light 
to that which the next day will get what we understand that it needs. It can sustain it on its own. Rabbis would continue to teach for centuries that this revealed light, this glory of God, after having created the rest of the world in creation, the sun and the moon and the stars and everything else, that revealed glory veiled itself until the time of the Messiah. And now you're going to begin to understand why they would come up with this and understand it this way as you begin to understand the bigger concept of light in the Jewish mind in the Old Testament and the nature of God's glory and presence with his people. You see, when you and I think of light, the first thing we think of naturally is the sun, is the moon, is the light coming from the sun, being reflected by the moon, all of those things. But in this concept, in the Jewish concept, light had a much bigger picture. In fact, David would write, we don't have time to go through everything, but David would write that God wraps himself in light. The prophet Ezekiel, having had a vision of the Lord himself, described him as one of brilliant light surrounding him. This light, this glory, plays a massive role in the life and in the story of God's people. If we pick the story up just one book over in the book of Exodus, This is when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 13, we read this. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So when they began to leave Egypt... God would lead them along the way in the land where they were by a cloud by day and by fire by night. And at night, that fire would illuminate and expose the dangers that were lurking in the darkness. At night in that land, it could get so cold. But this great fire that was amongst them would provide not just light for them, but warmth for them. By day, this pillar would become a cloud. And this cloud would shield them and protect them from the powerful rays of the sun. And it was this cloud that would lead them and and guide them as they would go on their way. And not just that. The glory of the Lord, this presence of God, this Shekinah glory, the same as the scholars would talk about in Genesis chapter 1, did not just stay with God's people and lead God's people. It defeated the enemies of God's people on their behalf. If you keep reading the story, you'll find in Exodus chapter 14, after they left Egypt, the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. You may know the story. All of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen, they all went after the Israelites. And it says in verse 24 of Exodus 14, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. God's presence never left his people. He shielded them. He led them. He warmed them. He illuminated the darkness surrounding them. He pushed that darkness back by his very presence and light, and he defeated their enemies on their behalf. As they would continue to travel, this glory, this presence would dwell amongst God's people as it would hover over the tabernacle. And when it moved, 
they picked up stakes and moved to follow the glory and the presence of God. For it was with them. It never left them. God's glory remained with his people. And as you keep going through the story, we don't have time to get into all the little details, but you'll find yourself in 1 Kings chapter 8. This is when the temple of the Lord would finally be built. And when the temple building was completed, it was this light, this glory, the Shekinah glory of God, the fullness of his presence with his people that filled that temple. And the glory was so great, it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, the people could not even stand. They fell. They couldn't even stand. And God's glory remained amongst his people there in the temple until a day came, you know the story, that due to their sin, God's people were given over into captivity. And the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 10, he had a vision from the Lord. And the vision was simply this. He watched the light. He watched the revealed light of God's glory that had been with his people all along, that dwelt amongst his people in the temple. He watched that glory leave. Ezekiel chapter 10, he says, the brightness of the light of God's glory filled the entire courtyard and he watched it cross the threshold of the temple to leave the presence of God's people. The glory had departed. But here's the thing. God had already woven into the life of his people three great festivals, three great feasts, three great memorials to narrate, to describe, to keep them woven into a framework of understanding their past identity, their present reality, and their future destiny. Every single year, God required them to remember, which literally means to reattach, remember, to reattach themselves to this great narrative that in their history, when God was all they had, they learned that he was all they ever really needed. The three great festivals, you might be familiar with them. One was the festival of Passover that celebrated the exodus of God's people from Egypt when God delivered them out of slavery into the land of promise. The other one was the feast of Pentecost. This was a time to remember and celebrate God's gracious giving of his law, of his word for their life. The third of the festivals, the great festivals, was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. This particular festival was when God's people would remember God's provision for them in the years in which they wandered in the wilderness, when God would provide water for them out of the rock, when God would provide food for them from heaven in the form of manna, and when God was with them day and night, guiding them, leading them, protecting them, covering them, caring for them. The Feast of Booths and Tabernacles was a time in Israel life, Israel's life where they would remember this reality. It was the festival of festivals. Jewish scholars would say that during these days, the city of Jerusalem would quadruple in size. One historian said that if you had not seen Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, you've not yet seen true joy. 
the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It happened at the end of harvest season. All the work had been done. All the crops had been brought in. And the, all the people would travel into Jerusalem. The great feast required all able-bodied men to come to Jerusalem for the feast. But more often than not, if they could, they would bring their family and their households with them. That's why the city would get so big. And for a week, they wouldn't stay in inns. They wouldn't stay in lodges. They would stay in tents. Or they would stay in booths remembering when they traveled through the wilderness in these tents while God cared for them. And what would happen is for an entire week, they would celebrate. Really, no lie. They would feast, they would eat, they would dance, they would sing. It was a great party for seven straight days. It's a whole other sermon for another time because we've got a lot to learn, but they would do this for an entire week. Now, this whole week had two big, excuse me, ceremonies that were a part of it. One was a ceremony that would remember God providing for them water from the rock, and it required what's called a water remembrance. But the second big part of this celebration was called the great illumination. This sounds like what you do at Christmas time, but it's a bit different. The great illumination would happen every single night of the festival. The festival would culminate on Sabbath. Sabbath is the only day this wouldn't happen. So for all the days leading up, late in the afternoon, rabbis would gather in the temple courts, the court of the treasury, or what was known as the court of the women. It's where all the, the receptacles, the big giant copper boxes that were shaped like horns, shofars, that's where they were located, where people would come and, and give their offerings and give their tithes and those things. Right there in that court, There were four to six, historians can't quite get the exact number because none of us were there back then, so they're trying to make sure they're reading, they're trying to figure it out, but there were four to six enormous candelabras, 75 feet tall, each of them having a 10-gallon receptacle for oil. And every single day, these lamps would be lit during the great illuminating ceremony, remembering the light of God that was present with them and for them throughout their time in the wilderness. And they would light these lamps and they would celebrate. They would sing, eat, dance all night long. Scholars said there wasn't a courtyard in Jerusalem that wasn't illuminated by these lights. So lest we think we invented the seven-day music festival, I don't think I can compare it to Coachella or anything like that, and I mean, I get in trouble for that, but God did something much greater than we ever come up with. But here's the thing. At the end of the feast, when the great day came to an end, every single year the lamps would go out, and they'd have to get put away. And one more time, as the people of God would remember God's ever-present provision for them during their time in the wilderness, the great light that guided them and protected them, they would remember that that glory is gone. And the lamps would get put away. And for another year, they would wait in darkness, hoping for the promised one that God said would shine the true light on them. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah prophesied in that day, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And so year after year, during the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, 
as these great lights were illuminated and the people would celebrate, they would go out and they would be reminded once again that they are waiting for God to shine the true light of his glory on them. And as you read the story like a human, you have to come to grips with the fact that every single year, for over 30 years, Jesus of Nazareth went to this festival. For over 30 years, he celebrated the Feast of Booths as every other Israelite man would. He'd go, he'd sing, he'd dance, he'd eat. The great lights would be lit. And every year he was there. But one year in particular, things got a little spicy for Jesus. Squirrel level 10, we'd say, around our house. It starts in John chapter 7. Jesus is already a couple of years into his ministry, and it's back to the Feast of Tabernacles again. But this year, unlike previous years, Jesus was proving to be an issue for people. People were looking for Jesus all over the place. They were gossiping about him. They were calling him names. They were accusing him of being possessed by a demon. Some were trying to find him so they could finally arrest him. And so the festival carried on, and they came to the great day, which is the last day before the Sabbath. It's when the hope of the celebration was at its highest point. And it's on that day, John tells us, on that great day, Jesus was in the court of the treasury, right where those receptacles were, right where the great lamps were, where every single day they were lit, and at the end of the festival, they would go out. And John says that he was right there. And on this particular day, he was teaching. Now, I hope to find out in eternity one day, if you've never heard me talk about this, one of the hopes I have for eternity is that God will let us actually see how all these stories played out. Like, I love The Chosen. If you haven't seen The Chosen, I love The Chosen. They do a great job with the stories, but I really want to see the real thing. I really want to see the facial expressions. I want to hear the tone of voice. I want to see what was really going on. And so it's on this great day that Jesus is standing right in front of these lamps, but John doesn't tell us exactly, is it at the point in the last day when they're lighting the lamps, or is it at the point when the lamps have finally gone out on the great day? I don't know. We'll find out one day, but Jesus has the knack for a moment. He's standing there in front of the great lamps, and John tells us in verse 12 of chapter 8 that Jesus spoke to them. Some of your translations will say crying out to them. I think that's better. This isn't Jesus doing the parables with his friends outside. This is Jesus standing in the court amidst the great celebration of people all around having been partying for six and a half days. And Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm what you're looking for. It's me, the glory, the light, the true light, what you're missing and what you're longing for, what you're wanting back. All of this, it's just temporary. It's me. I'm the one, the glory of God. God come to you into the darkness to be with you. The one who is life and gives life. 
who creates life and exposes darkness, who leads his people out of slavery into freedom and joy, who covers them, shelters them, provides for them, cares for them, loves them, nurtures them. It's me. It's like the greatest mic drop so far of his entire ministry at this point. Such a knack for a moment, right? This is what they're looking for. This is what they're longing for. This is the light they felt like was revealed at creation and drawn back until the day. And he says, it's me, right here, right now. And what he's claiming in that moment wasn't lost on anybody that was listening. They understood very well what Jesus was claiming. That in his words, I am taking upon himself the covenant name of God that God gave Moses back in the Exodus when Moses said, who do I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am. When Jesus says, I am the true light, they understood that he was claiming to be that revealed light that wasn't created. The one that led God's people out of Egypt into freedom and fullness the one who fully and finally deals with the true darkness. It's why I think John makes the note down there in verse 20 that he spoke these words in the treasury right there in front of the lights, but no one arrested him because the claim that he was making is the very claim that would get someone like Jesus or anyone else arrested really quick. Jesus is not standing there claiming to be a light like the lights that they had been lighting in the temple. Not a light amongst a lot of other lights that you go to to try to find your way in the darkness. No, he is claiming to be the light, the source of life and truth. I alone, Jesus is saying, am all you need. It was a bold claim to deity. And nobody missed it. Which is why in verse 13, you get this kind of religious alpha guy shouting in the middle of Jesus' teaching. You're a liar. Right now, we were talking about it in the first service. We're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this interaction, even though it's fascinating. We'll just explain it real quick. But in 14 years of doing this, I've never had anyone stand up in the middle of a sermon and yell at me that I was lying. <clears throat> you thought it. You've probably told people when you left that's what was happening. And maybe we'll do a special like grace gathering one night where we could tell stories of things that were kind of close. Like when a very strange prophetess drove all the way from Dallas and tried to get the microphone out of our hand. Yeah, you didn't know that happened, but it did. And the people we've had to physically keep away who have tried to get into the middle of the service to get a hold of the microphone. But no one's ever just stood up and gone, you're a liar. But that's what happened to Jesus because they understood what he was claiming. And it was just too much. The claim wasn't acceptable for their framework. And so Jesus has this great interaction with them. It's fascinating to take a look at. We'll do it another time. We won't dwell on it. But basically Jesus says, okay, so you say I'm a liar. But here's the thing. I know where I came from. And I know where I'm going. And you don't. Oh, I need two people to testify according to the law about this claim? 
Well, I testify about myself and my father who sent me. He testifies to me as well. He's been testifying through the words of John. He's been testifying through the miracles. He's been testifying through the law. Listen, but I, I know where I've come from. I was there. I was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things that came into creation, into being, were through me. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. Do you? It's a fascinating interaction. How would you know that I'm lying? Well, it doesn't get far. But here's what I want us to look at in the time we've got left. Jesus makes a tremendously audacious claim. I am the glory of God. The only true hope for every sinner and sufferer on earth. And we have to ask ourselves, is that our perception of Jesus? Because in these interactions we're going to see with Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're going to come face to face with a very real Jesus. Not the Jesus of your perception, not the Jesus of your cultural expectation, not the Jesus of your political environment. The very real Jesus. He makes a huge claim here. I am. Is that your perception of him this morning? Well, this claim, this audacious claim, it's not just a claim for theological sake. It's not just a claim for knowledge and information sake. It's a claim that comes with its own promise. Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is this darkness? Well, it's not the literal darkness of the wilderness. This is a spiritual darkness. Just as Jesus moved from the literal bread that God gave his people and the literal bread he distributed amongst the crowd last week to the heart, to the real need, he he moves quickly to the heart in this promise. This is a spiritual darkness that Jesus is talking about. It's a darkness that if we're really honest with ourselves, folks in the 21st century have a hard time coming to grips with because we think we of all people and times have moved beyond this kind of darkness. We're too enlightened for this kind of darkness. We've progressed too far for this kind of darkness. But it's just a quick run through the evening news, a quick run through the morning paper, and you and I will come face to face with the real story. All the atrocities, the sin, the greed, the exploitation, the abuse, they all tell a more real story. The story of the darkness and the things that we truly are capable of. The things that we think our world is beyond. But the reality of it is we're simply blind because, as the Bible tells us, every single one of us is born in spiritual darkness. We're born spiritually blind. And we spend our days walking through this spiritual darkness, thinking that we can kind of see things yet tripping over everything in front of us, and then thinking we can come up with another way to make our way through and make our way out. 
But in this darkness, we are unable to see the holiness of God and the glory of God and the true nature of our souls. And it's not just that we're in this spiritual darkness. As we read in our reading, we actually love this darkness. That's what you find in John chapter 3 in the interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus when he says, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We don't just live in the spiritual darkness. We, we actually love it. We actually love it. So what does it look like to actually walk in this darkness? What's that actually like? Well, that's an entirely different sermon in and of itself, so I'm just going to settle in on one example of walking in this darkness. It looks like our fear of exposure that we read about earlier. It looks like secret lives. See, secrecy is where you and I try to make a home in the darkness, even as followers of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you're you're going to learn a little bit something about us that you might not think is true. But here's the thing. Those of us who are followers of Jesus still buy the lie that as his disciples, we're no longer supposed to struggle with the temptations and the realities of life in a fallen world. And when we find ourselves caught up in something, it's this darkness that still remains that tries to pull us back into it and keep it hidden. Keep it secret, fearing the exposure that might come from it. And it's this secrecy that leads us down the path of destruction. When the pills you started taking to get through a day have become such that you don't think you can wake up and get through a day without them anymore, and you don't think you can say anything about it. It's when that online flirtation with that high school ex that you found on Facebook because you've begun to over-romanticize the past from 30 years ago, because you've become discontent with the present, becomes more fearful to you to expose than what you might lose. We find ourselves walking in this darkness of secrecy, and to maintain that secrecy, what do we have to do? We have to tell ourselves and we have to tell other people lies. And we would choose to lie rather than confess. Here's the thing, though. In the end, it's going to cost you the very thing that you're afraid to come clean with and lose. It's these lies. It's this secrecy. It's this darkness. This is where the destruction grows and blooms. But it doesn't have to be this way. Listen to David, Psalm 32. David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He's not saying isn't sinful, doesn't sin, doesn't give in to temptation. He's saying who's living in the light, who's not trying to hide anything anymore, who's not trying to find the dark pockets to pull this thing into. That's what he's talking about. 
Listen, friends, I don't know if you've realized this or not. We'll get back to the psalm in a minute. But you can't really hide anything from God. There is no secret that you think you've done such a good job of dragging into the darkest recesses and corners of your heart that God doesn't already know and see. I mean, there's no spiritual camouflage that you can put on your life and your heart that will keep God from seeing. In fact, in a, in a different psalm, Psalm 139, David said, Surely the darkness will cover me, and the light about me will be like night. Right? That's what we all think. Certainly I've got this thing tucked away far enough that no one, not even God, can see it anymore. And then David said, But even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Like you can't hide anything from him. He already knows. So David says, blessed is the one who's not trying to hide it anymore. That's what he means when he says there is no deceit. Because when we keep trying to hide it, David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. As through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Man, it is exhausting to try to keep the lies up. It is exhausting to try to keep the secrecy up. And David was way ahead of modern medicine. My wife brought a book home from the library the other day, and it's a beautiful title, Your Body Keeps a Score. The stress and the anxiety that your body absorbs in your ongoing efforts to try to keep these things hidden and to keep the lies going. It keeps a score. But David said in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's talking about not taking that easy path, because that's what we think the darkness is. That's what we think the lies are. That's what we think the secrecy is. We think it's the easy path. It's going to be easier to just keep this tucked away, because I'm so afraid of what exposure might bring. And the lies of the darkness tell us that we've got to keep this thing tucked away over here. Friends, if you won't listen to to John, you won't listen to David, listen to me. I will tell you, if you've ever gone through the mental exercise of of trying to figure out what Bible character you most identify with, and there are parts of us that identify with all of them, really, but if you've ever tried, you'll understand when I say that the Bible character that probably most encompasses my at least besetting sins is Jacob. Jacob came out of the womb telling stories, came out of the womb deceiving people, came out of the room trying to weave stories to work his way out of situations for his benefit to protect himself in all situations. That is me. I came out of the womb a gifted liar, a really good storyteller, so afraid that my place amongst people, even in my own home, though it was never in any way told to me or shown to me, but so afraid from the womb that my place was going to be completely dependent on how I met expectations, how I met perceptions, man, I would tell whatever story I needed to tell to myself or anyone else to make sure that everything was okay. And for decades, sometimes quickly, sometimes it took a while. I reaped the pain of the harvest of those stories. 
that secrecy, that keeping things away. And then you know what happened? Apart from coming to terms in God's grace with this reality in my life, God gave me a child that does the exact same thing. Out of the womb, born to tell a lie. Really, really good at it. And here's the thing, it was just like me. You want them to know that nothing about your love for them is in any way predicated on their performance, right? And you see them lie. And it's so clear. It's like you put a $5 bill on the table and they take it. Did you take the $5 bill? No. Like, I'm sitting right here. Like, why do you have to lie? And, and you talk to them and you want them to know it. Hey, listen, just, just be honest. Be honest. But here's the thing. You've got a choice in this moment. You get a choice when you realize the lie, when you're trying to keep the secret here, when you're trying to keep the story going. You've got a choice. If you're not going to be honest and you're not going to bring this thing into the light, you are going to have to carry the weight of trying to live two lives. You're going to have to carry the weight of trying to keep this perception of you, this perceived you. And man, we're in so many different circles. Do you know how many different lives some of us are trying to live? You've got to carry the weight of trying to keep all those things going. And the life that God wants to come in, forgive, work in, and heal. And you get the choice right here. Are you going to lie and try to carry that weight? Are you going to tell the truth and let him do the work he's promised to do? The light came in. But people love darkness. What's it going to be? John would later write a letter to the church when he would say, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We just keep deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me tell you this morning, if you are here this morning and you are walking in the darkness, and by that I mean you are trying to continue to harbor some kind of secret sin, secret life, secret reality, and the weight of all the lies and all the work of trying to keep that thing going are weighing down on you and you can see it, I'm going to tell you, you've got one of three ways that thing is going to end. I promise you. There's only three. The first one, is you're going to own that thing and you're going to bring it into the light and by God's grace, you're going to confess it and own it and taste the forgiveness and the mercy and the kindness of God. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to be strong. I'm not going to lie. I've never lied to you. I will not lie to you. It might be hard. It might be embarrassing. It might cost you something you don't want to lose. But I promise you, it is one of the greatest gifts God will ever give you. So that's one. Two, here's the other way it's going to end. God, in his mercy, will flat out out your sin. He will out it. You want to you know what that story's like? I don't have time to get into it. We're already late. You know what time? Go back and read the first part of John 8. The woman who was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus, and they wanted to stone her. And Jesus met her where she was and forgave her. You realize she didn't confess it. 
She didn't confess it. She didn't own it. She didn't repent of it. She was outed, and God did it in mercy. And she tasted the forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus right there. Some of you know what it is for God to totally out it. And that's a kindness. It still hurts, but it's a kindness. But there's a third way. There's either confession, there's either God outing you, or there's God giving you over to that sin. That in the end, that sin will destroy you. And you know what? The whole time he's given you over to it to be destroyed by it, you think you're getting away with it. You think you've beaten the system. You think you found the cheat code to this whole thing. And if you ever have a moment to look back on having been given over, I don't know how this works, but you look back on it, you realize that that darkness took you to places you never, ever, ever would have imagined possible for you to find yourself in. There's only three ways it ends, friends. Listen to Jesus here. He didn't come to simply be with us in the darkness. He came in order to deliver us from the darkness. And he accomplished this deliverance when he was nailed onto the cross. And there was a moment when Jesus was on the cross in Jerusalem around midday that the entire city was overcome in darkness for about three hours. And I believe that it was in that darkness that Jesus was taking the darkness of our sinful condition upon himself. Your sin, my sin was put on him. And it was in this darkness that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer that Jesus did not hear was because in the moment he had become our substitute and he had entered into the fullness of darkness of human sin and the wrath of God was placed upon him and he suffered in our place so that you and I, by the grace of God, through faith in him, can actually walk in the light of eternal life. To walk in the true light of life. And he cried out that it was finished. I've defeated it. And three days later, that dead body in the tomb got up and walked out. Because the darkness cannot overcome the light. I am the light of the world. Darkness cannot overcome me. I know what you're going through. I know what you're trying to hide. I know the lies you're trying to tell. Listen, I'm not ashamed to call you my friend. Do you hear him? I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. You're never going to do anything that's going to cause me to get tired of you and drop you back off in the darkness of the wilderness. Whoever follows me has me. In all that I am, you have the light that is life. Whoever, that's an enormous word. It means there's room in this promise for everyone in here. It means you can get in on this promise. It means that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Rich, poor, black, white, young, old, male, female, it doesn't matter. Grace is the great equalizer of us all. 
Whoever follows me will have the light of life. Whoever follows. Just as Israel had to follow the glory in the wilderness. To enjoy Jesus and to get in on this promise, we have to follow him. And to follow him is the same thing as to come and to eat the bread that he promised last week. It's to believe that he is who he says he is. It's to believe in him and then live like it. Live like it. It's to hand ourselves over to him completely and to know that he takes us completely and cares for us completely. Do you want to escape the darkness? Follow me. Friends, he loves his enemies. He went to the cross to take on himself the wrath that we deserve. It fell on him in the darkness so that it doesn't have to fall on you and I. I'll say it this way. God holds this promise out to you. He holds it out. It is very real. I don't know what you've believed coming in here, but God is not holding out on you. He's holding this out to you. You're the one holding out on him. He's holding this life out to you. Whoever follows me. You can start following Jesus this morning. You can understand life no longer walking in the darkness of condemnation and shame and have the light of life because of what he did. Friends, he's holding this out to us this morning. An invitation to enjoy him, to walk in the true light of life. Friends, will you take his invitation for his word this morning? Will you follow me? That's what he's asking. Friends, let's glorify God as we enjoy him together. Let's demonstrate that enjoyment as we walk in the light. Let's put on display as children of the light a deep and abiding enjoyment in the one who has come and set us free. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? What do I have to fear? Certainly not the darkness. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Father, it takes a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit to set a heart so captivated and enamored and tethered to the darkness. It takes a work of your Holy Spirit for the true light of life to break in. Lord, I ask this morning, you know where every heart is in here this morning. Hearts that are following you, but trying to lock some things away out of fear, believing a lie that somehow your love for them is built upon their performance for you. Others who have never come face to face with your grace and your son, who've had all kinds of perceptions about Jesus and perceptions about Christianity, and you brought them here this morning, and they've never really understood who you are for us in your son. It takes a work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning for light to shine in both of those hearts. And so this morning I ask for Jesus' name's sake, for his glory and our joy, that you would do that work that only you can do. We ask it in his good name. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, 
Visit us online at redemptionhill.com.